Hey, good morning, everyone. Hey, uh, where's, uh, where's Robert Alley at? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. He, yep. Uh, why don't you stand up? And uh, so, Robert, if you don't know Robert, and I'm happy to embarrass you this morning because I love you and I'm proud of you. So, um, so he lives in our home for a while house, but he, he was our first one to go through that program where guys live there for three or four months to try to help them get back on their feet and, and help them introduce them to Jesus and, and really get on their feet physically and spiritually. And Robert has... God has done incredible work in Robert, and um, he now lives there and helps other guys who are coming through the program, and today, he is two years clean from drugs, so let's give him a hand. Good. So good, so good. So before we jump into Ecclesiastes this morning, I want to address a question that I get asked this time of year. Every year, and I'm glad I get asked this because it's, it's great because people are like, why are we slowing things down during the summer? Why is there less going on? I want to continue to have connection group and Bible studies and all of this stuff. And there'll be some things going on, but why do things slow down from like Memorial Day to Labor Day? And I want to give you four main reasons, and there's even more. But one is that we want to promote healthy rhythms of rest for our volunteers, for our leaders, and for everyone in our church. Think about it like this. If our doing for Jesus outpaces our being with Jesus, we're going to have major problems in our church family. We desire everyone to just take a breath, especially during the summer, and rest. God did that on the seventh day, not because he needed to, but as an example to us. And I'm telling you this now so that you can plan for this. If you've planned like a, a, not just, maybe you've planned a vacation this summer, but, but I just, I just want to throw this your way and go, hey, maybe, maybe you plan as part of your family's vacation or part of, or maybe it's just a completely different time, a day or two to just help you and or your whole family connect with Jesus. And I think a great way for like, how do I do that? I think a great first step would just be to simply chuck this to the side or put it on airplane mode, even for a couple hours. You can be unreachable for a couple hours, it's true. And connect with Jesus. But if you want other ideas too to be able to do that, I have lots of them and would be able to help you. But we just want to help promote, just we want to be about Christ and, and walking with Christ and abiding with Christ, not just doing things for him. Secondly, we want to encourage families to connect well with each other. Here would be a really tragic story, and it's been people's stories, unfortunately, many times, that a marriage would crumble because they're so busy with church stuff. That would be really tragic. It would also be really tragic if we had kids that felt unseen, unheard, and not known by their mom and dad because they were way too busy with church things. That would be tragic. A third reason is we want to give you space to cultivate informal relationships with each other. You can't microwave relationships. You can't just, okay, I'm going to be in this group, so I'm going to have instant friends. Okay, I would love for that to happen, right? But that's not how relationships work. It's more organic than that. So we would just want to give you space 
to, to be intentional with one another. Maybe you're like, man, I've, I've always wanted to connect with this person, that person. They're not like in my Bible study or connection group. Do it, you know? Um, and we want to give you the space to be able to do that. We also want to give you the space to cultivate informal relationships with unbelievers. See, it would also be tragic if we were so busy here at the church that we didn't give you enough space to be telling other people about Christ and building those relationships with your neighbors and coworkers and friends and people you rub shoulders with. So there's just four of many, many reasons of why we slowed down a little bit in the summer. And it was funny, last summer someone said to me, you know, why are we stopping group? I'm like, you, you want to lead one this summer? Go for it. And he did, and it went really well. It was awesome. So, um, <laughs> so I'm like, great, if you want to do that. But they were not currently leading. So, so it's, it's also, uh, there's another reason, number five, possibly an opportunity for other leaders to be raised up. Great reasons. All right. Now, as we turn our attention to Ecclesiastes, I want to remind you the significance of this title right here, of this screen our, our, and our title perspective. I want to remind you, or if you haven't been here, what this is all about. So we absolutely need a hope-filled perspective of Jesus Christ. Nope, nope, nope. Stay there, please. You're good. You're good. I'm not, that, that won't be for quite a bit. So we absolutely need the hope-filled perspective of Christ. This is a picture I took in, um, in McCoe's Park a couple years ago during the fall. It was a beautiful scene. And as Christians, we absolutely need the lens of Christ to be able to see this world in a way that is full of hope. But here's the reality. Another perspective to look at this world is like taking these glasses off where things are just fuzzy and a bit dark. But we need that perspective. We need the perspective, as Solomon calls it, under the sun. We have to have this sobering perspective. And here's why we need both of these perspectives. Number one, it helps us see this world properly. We are not in heaven yet. We need to see this world properly. We can become way too naive, especially when others are hurting around us. And we, we can even think or sometimes even say, why aren't you full of the joy of the Lord? Or things like that. And become kind of, kind of judgmental in, in a way and just think, think things and, and say things that are insensitive and naive and downright rude sometimes. We need this perspective. We live in a broken, sin-filled, hurting, evil world, and we cannot live for Jesus in it effectively, much less introduce people to Jesus in it effectively without understanding the brokenness in our world. Secondly, the reason that Ecclesiastes is in Scripture and why it's helpful to us is that it helps us have realistic expectations of this world. This is not our home. Quit acting like it's your home. This is my temptation so often to expect from this world heaven when it is not. And so this is, Ecclesiastes is a call for us to have realistic expectations of this world because it cannot and it will not give you what your heart craves and longs for. Only Christ can do that. So let's turn our attention now to Ecclesiastes 3. And we're going to look at Chapter 3, starting in verse 16 through 4. Chapter 4, verse 3 this morning. 
3.16 to 4.3. Now we can go to that next slide. So the first sobering reality under the sun, this perspective, really it's a perspective of life without God. It's not that God is not present. It's not that God isn't involved. It's just a perspective that Solomon is showing us from his younger years of when you leave God out of it in your, in your mind. And so the first one is that this morning that we're going to see is that human justice is corrupt. So Ecclesiastes 3.16, and I'll be using the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, today. 3.16, I also observed under the sun... There's wickedness at the place of judgment, and there's wickedness at the place of righteousness. There's a verse. Human justice is corrupt. In every human institution, human justice is corrupt. Let me show you. Let's just start with the home. Even good parents simply don't treat their kids fairly and justly all the time. I mean, right, kids? Isn't, isn't the phrase, that's not fair, real? <laughs> I mean, sometimes it straight up isn't fair. Schools, you have teachers, principals, coaches that often show favoritism. I mean, right? Non-coaches, kids out there, right? It happens. The workplace, you have bosses, coworkers, whole companies that reward bad behavior or punish good behavior. I don't think you need me to give you any examples of that. I'm sure you instantly thought of some. The courtroom. Judges, juries sometimes purposely rule incorrectly, and it probably happens more than we know, especially in more or less democratic nations, but I'm positive it happens here as well. Let's go to lawmakers themselves, the government. The government sets up laws sometimes that are unjust and corrupt. And it happens, by the way, under both Democratic and Republican officials. Even churches act unjustly and unwisely toward members of their church family. And I'm sure we've done it here without even realizing it. And God help us not to fall into that trap. An important note, though, is that not all human institutions always are unjust and corrupt. Many, most of the time, are just, and there are effective tools of God, and we are called to honor and respect and pray for our leaders. But the point is that all institutions, to some degree, get it wrong sometimes. And that's what we see in Ecclesiastes 3.16. Jump down a few verses to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Solomon gets a little bit more intense about human justice being corrupt. 4.1, he says, Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead. Who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed. Who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. So he gets more intense here and, and in 
verse 1, 4, 1, he shines a spotlight even larger on the corruption by noting now oppression. Here's what oppression is. It's mercilessly preying on the helpless. Mercilessly preying on the helpless. See, corruption within human institutions over time inevitably and tragically leads to oppression. And often oppression over whole groups of people. And we see this time and time again through human history. Solomon sees the absolute terror of being oppressed. And in verses 2 and 3 here in chapter 4, says that it would be better if you weren't even born than to live a life of oppression, of being oppressed. Now, I want to bring this to life to you. I have a friend of mine who's a pastor who tells this story of a church member of theirs, and and this is her story, okay, of a church member who saw through a series of of events, and I'm not going to get super graphic, but I'm going to share some of the things that happened where it it loses the effect, but through a series of events, this gal was made dependent on drugs, and in order to get more drugs, had to sleep with guys. They moved, to, they moved her to another country, cleaned her up from her drug addiction, and then she was given like property to powerful men. Then when they were done, they used her in an unthinkable way to send drugs back into the U.S. My pastor friend uses this story to help people realize that you may not think Because of your own personal experiences, maybe you've lived kind of a rosy life. You may not have a need in your personal theology for hell. But the reality is that the corruption, oppression, and evil in this world absolutely deserves it. We need to wake up. I don't share that story for shock and awe. I could share much worse you could probably share worse. I share this because oppression rears its ugly face in all spheres of life. It's easy to immediately think of human trafficking, which is the stats are staggering on. It's easy to think of forced child labor and and oppressive governments, and all of that is absolutely tragic, but the reality is that wherever there is power, there is potential for oppression. There are more of us sitting here in this room today who have been oppressed or who have oppressed others than we would feel comfortable thinking about. Emotional, physical, sexual abuse is rampant in our culture, rampant in our community. So let me just pull over and say this. If you are being oppressed, get help. Talk to me. Get some counseling. Maybe you even need to go to law enforcement. But get help. If you are oppressing others, if you are using your power to control and prey upon people, I would say the same thing. Get help. Let's talk. Let's get some counseling. Let's get some help. See, nothing good grows in the dark. You read 1 John. You read Scripture in general, but 1 John talks all about how 
We need to bring things into the light. And I've been asking people lately. Sometimes people share things with me, and then, they sh- and then they're like, well, there's more to it, but I'm not going to share the rest with you. And I'm like, that's fine. You don't have to share everything with me. But I would just ask you, who are you sharing it with, if not me? Because nothing good grows in the dark. See, the, the, real, the, the real road to freedom and healing from, from all addiction, oppression, injustice, sin, struggle, suffering, all of that comes through bringing it to the light, which means sharing it openly with God and with others. And that doesn't mean with everyone. But are you sharing it with anyone? But before we point our fingers too quickly to other people, we must note that each of us individually acts unjustly at times. You know, I've, I've pointed out institutions, I've pointed out all of these things, but the, pr- the, the problem is that our sin nature means that none of us, none of us are consistently just. Human justice is corrupt institutionally and individually for each one of us, including myself. God help us, which leads to the next verse and the next point. And this is the reality over the Son, or reality of God over us, and that's that God's justice is trustworthy. Human justice is corrupt, but God's justice is trustworthy. Ecclesiastes 3.17, I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, since there is a time for every activity and every work. So in contrast to human justice, which is corrupt, and it's corrupt by nature from the jump, God's justice is always 100% trustworthy. So God not, not only always acts and judges justly and correctly. Get this. He is not capable of acting and judging unjustly and incorrectly. Why? Because God sets the standard of right and wrong because he's the creator of all. God is just. He is the definition and the standard of justice. So while it's, I mean, it's quite the kick in the teeth that human justice is corrupt, both institutionally and individually, it's an, it's an incredible safety net and relief to know that God is just. He is trustworthy. His track record precedes him. He literally has never acted unjustly. And perhaps you're thinking, well, what about that terrible thing that happened to me in my past? I would just ask, was that God or was that a sinful human? It was probably a sinful human. That person, though, get this, will not go unpunished. You might think, well, it seemed like they did. It seemed like they got away with it, scot-free. Oh, but get this. Nothing gets past the justice of God. Nothing and no one gets past the justice of God. He or she will pay, if not in this life, in the next. And if not themselves, Jesus will pay for them. And you might automatically think, that's not fair. 
They deserve this and this and this. They did this to me, so they deserve this and this. But wait a minute. So do you. See, you and I also have acted unjustly, unfairly at some point. Probably, no, for sure, multiple points in our lives. And so we too are evil and are deserving of punishment. But thanks be to God that he sent Christ to take that punishment on himself. I mean, justice is a hard thing to grapple with. You look at it and you think, oh man, how, you know, theologically, it's hard to wrestle with. But justice is incredible news for us because it means that Jesus is going to take care of all injustice. Either he will take it on himself for us or he will mete out justice when he comes back. But God's justice is trustworthy because he has a perfect track record. And that leads to the hope-filled reality under the S-O-N, under Jesus, the reality of God with us. And that's that God's justice is actually inviting. So Romans 3.26, right here for you. God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, this is an invitation. It's an invitation to have faith, to trust in Jesus, to take our sinful injustices on himself. And that makes us justified, just as if we never sinned. But not, it's not just a forgetting of our sin. That would not be just. It's a substitution. He steps in and takes the punishment for us in our place. And eternally, God's justice is very inviting. He literally offers relationship with God himself instead of his just wrath and punishment for our sin. And he offers that to each one of us. But if you are a follower of Christ, here and now, is God's justice all that inviting, you may ask? Yes, but in a different way. God has... And he will give us consequences here on earth for injustices. Think of it like this. The wages of sin is always death. So eternally, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But here and now, there are real consequences for sin, even as followers of Christ. It may be the death of a relationship, It may be the death of a blessing, maybe the death of opportunities in our life. But don't think for a moment that God's grace exempts you from consequences here on earth. Just ask the follower of Christ who is sitting over in a jail cell right now. There are consequences here in this life. But think of it like this. This isn't the justice of an almighty judge. The almighty judge has already ruled in your favor if you are in Christ. This is the discipline of a loving father. Those are very different. The justice of an almighty judge and the discipline of a loving father. See, when our loving heavenly father disciplines his kids, when he disciplines us, 
their place in the family isn't in question. Okay, when we discipline our kids out of love, their, their place in our family isn't in question. You know, Joy doesn't have to sit over here while I'm disciplining her and go, oh, am I still going to be his daughter? No. Hopefully she's never had that thought in her head. <laughs> we can ask her later. But no. We are eternally secure because of Jesus Christ. But sometimes I discipline my kids for their good. See, when our, our loving father disciplines us, even better than I do or you do, if you are a mother or a father, the goal is to teach them a, a lesson to help them out. When our loving father disciplines us as his kids, the end result should be that we actually draw closer in relationship, which is a great goal for us as parents too as we discipline our kids the goal should actually be not to push them away but to draw them in because that's what God does with us the goal is to draw them closer and sure it might be painful but it's necessary to learn that the father's ways are best so God's justice is in fact inviting because God is with us he's for us and he walks alongside us as our perfect loving father now let's print, turn the page to the second part of our passage today. And this is on death. And, and so we're going to go back to a sobering reality under the sun. And this one is that death is certain. Ecclesiastes 3, 18 to 21. I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam and they may see for themselves that they are like animals. For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All are going to the same place. All come from dust and all return to dust. Who knows if the spirits of the children of Adam go upward and the spirits of animals go downward to the earth. Death is certain. It'd be easy to get caught, too caught up in the weeds here that you missed the point. Humans and animals are alike in that death is certain for both of them. Nonetheless, I'll briefly try to pull some weeds for you because no one likes dandelions except for little kids. Oh, okay. I'm glad you do. Not in your garden, though. So let's take them out. Verse 19. How do people have no advantage over animals, right? You might think that you read that and go, well, that doesn't make sense. Solomon means that in, this, in, in, this, in the sense that death is certain for both. That's, that's all he's getting at there. In other ways, people do have an advantage, right? You, you read Genesis 1 and 2, we, the concept of the imago Dei, that we are created in, in the image of God. Animals are not. We are eternal Beings, and we'll talk about that more later, animals are not. He just means that for both, death is certain. Verse 20, he says, all are going to the same place. Is that true? Again, he's referring to the fact that both will physically die, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Now verse 21, what's he saying there? Is he saying that all dogs go to heaven? Fun movie to watch growing up. But no, that's not what he's saying, okay? 
He's not saying anything like that. He's simply asking a question in verse 21. Don't miss that. He's asking a question. Solomon, in this perspective of under the sun, like leaving God out of the picture when he was young, just leaving God out, he was uncertain of what's going to happen next. That's certainly the natural conclusion under the sun without God. So don't feel a need to draw a hard theological conclusion from a question or from Solomon's wrestling under the sun. The sobering reality is that death is 100% certain. That's a reality that we need to be reminded of regularly. You know, people through the centuries, especially um, in Europe, have been known to put a human skull on their desk. And they do it to remind them of this, that death is absolutely certain. Maybe we should throw a skull on our desk. Maybe not an actual one, though. But we do need to be reminded often, and it's a sobering reality, but death is certain. Now let's move to reality over the sun, this perspective of God over us. And here's the perspective here. YOLO. Now, just to be clear, someone didn't dare me to try to fit in YOLO into the sermon today. Although people have dared me to try to include things, and I don't take them up on it. Although it is kind of a, like a um, goal of mine that one day I would be able to make this a point in a sermon, and I did. So it's fun. Um, but you only live once. And let me show you. I'm not just being cute here. It's, it's actually in the Scripture. So Ecclesiastes 3.22. I've seen that there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that is his reward. So he's saying because death is certain and God is the one who knows the mysteries of death, enjoy life. You only live once. This is one of the many carpe diem scriptures in Ecclesiastes. You see this over and over. And carpe diem is a Latin phrase that means seize the day. And it's been used for centuries to spur people to action. It's actually from originally the Roman poet Horace and... uh, it, it just means seize the day, carpe diem. My, my college roommate, I can't, I can't hear this phrase without hearing my college roommate. Every day we would wake up, he would, get, he would go, all right, Matt, time to seize the carp today. <laughs> and he, you know, just a, just a fun way to, uh, you know, take this phrase and totally misuse the Latin. Um, but still get the idea, seize the carp. But that, all, of the, all of this concept actually comes from God's word. But not in like this fatalistic, depressing, reckless, careless way. If you remember in Ecclesiastes 2, we saw that we need to enjoy life as an undeserved gift from God. And we need to enjoy life walking with God in relationship. So the call is actually to seize the day, so to speak, for God's glory. We need to enjoy the blessings he's given us. We need to savor the short 18 years you're given with your kids before they move out. Even the parts that are difficult. And we need to not waste opportunities in our lives to love God and to love others as he calls us to. We need to seize the day for God's glory. Because you only live once. But the hope-filled reality under Christ, this perspective of God with us, is this. That eternity 
is certain. The end of verse 22. So beginning he says, I have seen that there's nothing better for a person to enjoy his activities because that's his reward. Then he asks a question. He says, for who can enable him to see what will happen after death? And when I read this, I wanted to be like, oh, Solomon, pick me, pick me. I know, I know who enables people to see what will happen after death. Jesus does. Jesus enables us to see what will happen after death. Eternity is certain for every single person in one of two places, heaven or hell. We're all eternal creatures. John 3, 16 through 18. Maybe you're familiar with some of this passage. It says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Crystal clear. Especially love verse 18 there. Do you know what will happen to you when you die? If you are uncertain like Solomon was. He's asking, you know, who knows what will happen? Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus today. And it says here, verse 16... If you do that, you will have eternal life with him. But if you do not, verse 18, you will go to hell. You are an eternal being. It's not if you'll live forever, it's where you'll live forever. And that should put a holy fear within you. Choose Christ so that you will live And if you have done that, if you have repented and believed in Christ, then enjoy the peace and the confidence you have because of the assurance of your salvation. Not because of what you did. Sure, you had faith. You received the gift. But because of what he did. You can be confident today. You can walk out of this building. You can breathe your next breath with absolute peace and assurance that goes beyond understanding because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. But eternity is certain. So I want to pray for us, and then I want us to apply this together here this morning. So I'll pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your grace. And I thank you for your kindness. And I pray that your kindness would lead us to repentance. I pray that if there are those here that do not know you, that today would be the day of salvation. And God, I pray for those in here that have been treated terribly in life, that have been oppressed, that they would trust you with justice, Lord. And I pray for those here that are oppressing others, that they would feel the deep conviction of the Holy Spirit and get help and get out of that. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Ecclesiastes. I pray that you would guide us and lead us by your spirit as we apply this together now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we have an opportunity to live this out. 
And so I want us, if you feel comfortable, to just put your hands out like this, like you're giving something to God. And I want you to just bow your head and close your eyes with your hands out like this. And just confess to God something unjust that you've said or done recently. Or let me put it another way, because we don't tend to think of our actions as unjust. So confess to God something unfair or inconsistent that you've said or done recently. What's something unfair or inconsistent that you've done to someone else or to God recently? Share that with him. letting go of something, palms down, and ask God to help you let go of something unjust, unfair, or inconsistent that's been done to you. Maybe you have something that's decades in the past, or maybe fresh this week, or somewhere in between, but you have something that you are just having a hard time letting go of, and I just want to invite you this morning that Jesus is inviting you to just release that to him. Say, I trust you with that, Jesus. I trust you. I release this to you. Now, if you'll take the communion cup under your seat. We'll take out the bread first. This represents the broken body of Christ was broken, whipped, beaten, mocked, and scorned for us. And before we eat this, I want you to, as you're you're eating this, I want you to thank Jesus for dealing perfectly with all injustice, both that's been done to you and done by you because of the broken body of Christ. Let's take this together. Thank him for dealing with all injustice. Thank you, Jesus. And as we get out the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us on the cross, as we take this in a moment, I want you to just thank Jesus for the certainty of eternity in heaven with him because of his blood that purchased that for us on the cross. Let's take that together. Thank you, Jesus, for eternity in heaven. Thank you so much, Jesus. We're so grateful for the cross. All right, let's stand and worship him together.